turn with me to John chapter 10 in your Bibles. And as always, I want to encourage you to keep your Bibles open. Have a pen ready if uh, you're uh, inclined to take notes and be prepared to think deeply about what it is that Jesus is the Good Shepherd. Well, I want to begin by reminding you of the stated theme of the Gospel of John. John 20, verse 30, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so this is a very important statement. The point is that the process by which someone gains eternal life is given to us in writing. And that's how it works. It is exclusively dependent upon and determined by what is written. And so we place our trust in the incarnate God who is given to us in his word. Last week, we looked at verses 1 through 10. And from there, we pointed out, number one, that thieves steal, kill, and destroy sheep, and sheep run from and do not hear their voice. You remember this from last week, I'm sure. Truly, truly, verily, verily, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. We pointed out that the term thief is indicative of that person who has a practice. It's a lifestyle of thievery. It's the dumbing down, really, the, the killing of the conscience such that to take something that doesn't belong to him no longer really bothers him at all. Maybe the first time he did it, he was troubled by it, but he's become to practice that, such that that's what he's known by. The robber is different, though. This term robber speaks of a person who steals with, with strong-arming, with manipulation. He's willing to threaten a person's life. And so Jesus is using these two terms to describe the false shepherd, the thief, the robber. And why is that critically important for the thief or the robber, for the false shepherd to do that? It's because the true sheep do not hear their voice. So when they climb over the wall into the sheepfold, not entering through the door, but sneaking their way in, risking their own lives, purporting to risk the lives of the sheep, they're doing so in private, and they know that when they get there, the sheep are not going to hear them and follow them. So they're going to have to grab the sheep. They're going to have to seize, capture the sheep, and ultimately scatter them to the degree that they can so that they don't find their way back into the fold. Thieves steal, kill, and destroy sheep. That's their entire personal, fundamental endeavor. A stranger they will not follow. True sheep, those who are truly the sheep of the great and good shepherd, do not follow the voice of strangers. Now see, this ought to really open up a massive amount of theological understanding as to why it is that people follow false shepherds. Why is it that someone would follow a guy who's wildly popular but clearly heretical, a Joel Osteen or a Benny Hinn? 
who has repeatedly, time and time and time again, decade after decade, shown himself to be a false teacher. Why do people follow people like that? Why do they find themselves passionately committed to someone who has displayed himself to be dishonest? By the way, maybe the most significant revelation about Benny Hinn has come through his nephew, Costi Hinn. Costi became a Christian a number of years ago. You gotta Google his name and just listen to him explain how he came to discover the great disaster that his uncle really is. And he's a gracious man. He's come to know Christ, pastoring a church now, a legitimate church. In doing so, he's shown himself to be a true shepherd, really coming out of the the fire being snatched out of the flames of a lifestyle of massive financial earthly prosperity. And he gave it all up. He gave it all up for the sake of Christ because Christ saved him. It's a wonderful example of what it looks like to come out of that mess. Verse 6, you remember, goes on to say, the figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. We took you to the book of Mark and showed you where parables are used specifically for two purposes. One, to illuminate truth for those who hear and recognize and love truth, but also to confuse those who do not hear and recognize and love truth. It's that which further displays the distinction between the true sheep and false sheep. Verse 8, all who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. So again, thieves and robbers need to be thieves and robbers because their voice does nothing to appeal to true sheep. And then in verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Point two last week was the true shepherd leads, cares for, and gives abundant life to his sheep, and his sheep know and follow his voice. You've heard people say, and maybe you remember yourself, maybe you're currently in this condition where we say, you know, I just don't get much out of the Bible. I try. I mean, I've really tried. But I read and I get to a point where it just doesn't make any sense. I mean, Leviticus, come on, are you serious? But even in the New Testament, I just get worn out. I don't understand, why do I need to read? What's up with that? Well, the the problem is that person doesn't hear The voice of the shepherd, he's not a sheep. True shepherd leads, cares for, and gives abundant life to his sheep, and the sheep know and follow his voice. It's not an audible voice. Jesus is not physically here. You ever hear somebody say, well, you know, I just had this one experience one time. No, you didn't. I mean, sure you did. But anybody can interpret whatever they want to make it be whatever they want. Just because you really maybe actually did sort of physiologically come under the strong impression that you really did hear an audible voice, why in the world would you say that that was God? Why not just say it was something you ate? That's probably what it was. The voice of The true shepherd is in his word. The voice of the true shepherd is in his word. 
Look uh, for a moment at verse 19. We won't spend time there in our text this morning, but jump to John 10, verse 19. There was a division among the Jews because of these words. Whose words? Jesus' words. Jesus came to divide. He came to divide the sheep from the goats. He said, I did not come to bring peace. I came to bring the sword. And of course, he provided peace for all of his sheep, every one of them. But those who would not receive his word, those who had hardened their hearts to the degree that it was repulsive to them, showed themselves to be on the other side of that dividing line. Many of them said he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? And this is what typically happens when the false convert hears truth. He starts making personal accusations about the teacher who teaches truth. The more he can do to discredit the messenger, the less he himself is convicted by truth and the less he is troubled by those who believe the truth. Verse 21, others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Those are sheep. Or at the very least, those are those who have displayed a significant level of enlightenment, what we might call sensitivity. They might not be saved yet. But they're showing themselves, at least at this point, to be unwilling to simply insult the bearer of truth. Look at the facts. He just gave a blind man sight. It's not a demon. This is not somebody who's oppressed by demons. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Come on, let's be real about this. So we talked about the... When we dealt with the blind man a few weeks ago, we talked about his determined condition. While being dismissed from the synagogue, that meant much less to him than the determination that he had been given sight. A man who was blind from birth, not by his own fault, not by his parents' fault, Jesus said, but so that the works of God would be on display. This is the problem. The Word of God divides. The Word of God divides. So the true shepherd leads, cares for, and gives abundant life to his sheep, and his sheep know and follow his voice. You see that? Some of you remember this when it first started happening in your life with great clarity and profundity because it was such a massive and drastic distinction between what you had experienced prior you remember those days where you kind of sat sort of, you know, meanderingly through the worship service, thinking about 12 other things, and you never really locked in. By the way, everybody does that from time to time. But that was the pattern, right? That's what it was like for you week after week after week if you were involved at all in any kind of church experience. It was easy for you to drift if you were sitting under sound teaching. On the other hand, if you were sitting under circus-like cotton candy teaching, it pretty much kept you entertained. But nothing spiritually valuable actually ever happened. You might have had fleeting joy from week to week. 
but you did not experience the fullness of joy that comes with a recognition of your depraved state leading you to understand your great need for the great and good shepherd. And so when God opened your eyes, you began to drink deeply as a baby drinks, really devours voraciously the pure milk that his mother provides for him. And you found the word of God powerfully impactful, changing you, giving you encouragement, giving you strength. The river of life began to flow out of your own heart into the hearts of others. You were following his voice. You recognized it. You had become the 1 Corinthians 2, 15 man, not 14, who doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. But you came to the place where you could appraise all things in the context of the Word of God. Not that you could easily understand them always, but that God has enabled you by giving you eyes to see and ears to hear and a mind that can comprehend the truth, the ability then to grapple with it, to wrestle with it, to sit under sound teaching, to trust the Spirit of God, to give you wisdom to know whether or not what you're being told is so. And you found that to be a very happy and encouraging experience. The text that we looked at there, beginning with verse 2, says, But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. It's precisely what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 2. So Jesus, in verse 7 Again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Uh, and then verse 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And some people might say, well, wait a minute, you know, I, hold on. Okay, you kind of just described me. Yeah, I don't get the word of God. I don't really have a passion for reading it. I really don't want my life to be molded by it, not that I... I have a passionate disinterest in it. I just am not compelled by it. But I am convinced that I wholeheartedly embraced Jesus. Here's the question. What Jesus did you embrace? That's the question. And so that should forcibly, in your mind, require you to step back and think, what? Well, hold on a minute. Yeah. When I was embracing Jesus, what had I been told about him? It's not at all uncommon for people to sit through some sort of religious experience with little or no biblical understanding of the person of Christ. And so what they're told after hearing a few emotional stories, some sensationalized expressions of some sad things and some happy things and some good things and some bad things, they say, now don't you want Jesus? And you have no idea what that even means, but it sure sounds good. And they might even tell you that he's loving and they might even tell you that he loves everyone. And they might even tell you that he died for everyone. And they might even tell you that he rose on high for everyone. And so you think, well, that sounds good. Yeah, why don't I do that? But you never under understood his holiness. You never understood that the Bible calls him the judge. That he is the executioner of those who reject him for who he really is. And maybe you even made some effort to read the Bible yourself and you begin to see things and you start thinking, why in the world do I never hear these things from the pulpit? 
And typically the answer to that question is because they're offensive and whoever is in the pulpit doesn't want to run people off. No pastor, no shepherd should want to run people off. But the sheep hear the voice of the good shepherd. And those who faithfully communicate the truth of the good shepherd will be useful to the true sheep. And though at times what the true sheep hear from a faithful messenger of the true shepherd will be painful, they'll keep coming back because they will find that that truth not only exposes the difficulties and the problems and the weaknesses and the failures and the sins of the sheep, it provides the solution. And it's not some sort of quick fix. It's a willingness to be scathed by the power of the Word of God and then lift it up with great strength and encouragement, not for your own personal greatness, but in your complete lack of greatness. To be a window into the greatness of Christ for those who need to know Him. Well, this morning, please look with me at verses 11 through 15, John 10. 11 through 15. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. This morning we'll observe the good shepherd's sacrificial love for his sheep and the false shepherd's sinful love for himself so that we will know and love the good shepherd more faithfully. Is that not what you want? I want to be less, a whole lot less like me and a whole lot more like him. I want to be faithful to love him, to know him more deeply, to be more moved by the truth of his kindness, his compassion, his holiness, his righteousness. As John the Baptist speaks of in John 3, verse 30, that he would increase. That's what I want. That's, that's what you want. That he would increase but that we would decrease, that there would be a much lesser interest in ourselves in ourselves, that we would grow in our awareness of the reality of our condition, refusing to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt, growing in hunger for holiness, not some contrived holiness that we somehow achieve, but that which the Lord, this is how this works, you need to understand this, that the Lord produces in us, not by our own doing, but the holiness that the Lord produces in us as we show ourselves to be obedient to his word, to humble ourselves, even the seeming small things, you know what Jerry Bridges would call the respectable sins, things that we think are not a big deal. They are a big deal when they display a defiance against what Jesus has called us to. And typically it's attitudes that are easiest to cover, to wash over. You know, bitterness, lovelessness, 
jealousy, anger, hatred, covetousness, malice, you know, these desires for harm to come to other people, feeling poorly treated, thinking we deserve better, we deserve more, we've worked harder, and so we should have more than what we have. Typically, it's attitudes that go uncovered and unaddressed because to some degree, right, they're hidden in the heart. Out of the mouth speaks the heart, so eventually those attitudes are going to be on display. But they're easier to hide, especially for the person who's willing to keep his mouth shut even though he's boiling inside. So as I said, we want to observe the good shepherd's sacrificial love for his sheep And the false shepherd's sinful love for himself so that we will know and love the good shepherd more faithfully. That's really what our lives are about. Being exposed to him and loving him more faithfully. Last month, the Wausau Daily Herald in Wisconsin reported that a 19-year-old man had been charged with intentionally starving cows on his family's Marathon County farm. Prosecutors charged Joshua Litza with two counts of intentionally failing to provide food to animals, four counts of failing to timely dispose of an animal carcass, and one count of bail jumping. According to a criminal complaint, a Marathon County Sheriff's deputy responded to a farm on Bass Lake Road in the town of Norrie for a report of cattle in the road. While the officer was helping round up the cattle, he saw other cows that were thin with bones protruding from their sides and at least four carcasses of dead cows that appeared to have been there for some time, according to the complaint. At the time, the owner of the farm, John Litza, 57, was out of town working, and his girlfriend told the deputy his son, Joshua Litza, was supposed to be feeding and taking care of the nearly 30 cows but he had not. The deputy also said the farm was an unsafe environment for animals as there were many broken down pieces of equipment laying around and plastic bags and garbage strewn about the property, according to the complaint. It's unclear if the landowner, John Litza, will also be charged. Joshua Litza will be in court for a preliminary hearing. In September, he was charged with three counts of possession of child pornography and three counts of exposing a child to harmful materials. He faces a maximum of seven and a half years in prison if convicted of the animal abuses charged against him. When the deputy spoke with Joshua Litza, he said he feeds the cows bread, corn, and hay. But the deputy reported he did not see any recent signs of feeding or watering. According to the complaint, this is a modern day expression of what it is to be a false shepherd, a hireling who doesn't own the sheep, in this case, cattle, and then care for them, has no real interest in them. He was hired, obviously, to take care of them. He was responsible for doing so, and he abandoned his responsibility. This is very much like the man who finds his way into a role in ministry and has no business being there. And while person after person comes to express their concern about how that false shepherd handles the sheep, 
Somehow or another, he bypasses the reality. And that typically will take place in the context of a church where one man has made himself out to be the dictator, the king. He might have what he calls deacons that sort of surround him, but for the most part, he surrounds himself with spiritual midgets who would never challenge him with regard to his character. Again, that's very, very common. The good shepherd loves the sheep and dies for them. That's point number one. The good shepherd loves the sheep and dies for them. I am the good shepherd. This is the fourth of our Lord's I am statements in the book of John. The first was, you remember, John 6, 35. I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And then in chapter 8, verse 12, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then last week, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The ultimate I am statement is in John 8. There at the end of the chapter, when they asked him who he was earlier in the chapter, verse 25, he allows the scenario to unfold and eventually says to them, Behold, before Abraham was, I am. This is ego eimi in the Greek, the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew, what we often refer to as Yahweh. Some will say Jehovah. And that's not wrong, um, but the point is, This is what theologians in old call the ineffable tetragrammaton. It's unspeakable. We don't say his name because if we don't say it, then we won't take it in vain. But that's not what it means to take the Lord's name in vain, now is it? Take the Lord's name in vain is to take the Lord's name and live with vanity, to live with meaningless, to live not for the Lord while saying, you do, that's what it is to take the Lord's name in vain. And as they commonly did, the Jews committed themselves to the letter of the law and violated the spirit of the law. They were willing to simply avoid saying the name God, avoid saying Yahweh. Therefore, they couldn't possibly take it in vain. They couldn't possibly misuse it. Boy, was that wrong. They misused it every breath they took. Jesus is the I Am. And he said, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. See, this is what I mainly was referring to earlier when I mentioned that point in many people's lives when they have discovered the person Jesus in some sort of superficial way. Wouldn't you just love to have Jesus? And there's absolutely no explanation of the fact that he is the creator. And we said it many times, you do not know Jesus if you do not believe in his deity. That's his whole point. And many people will say, many people will argue against that based on their experience and say things like, well, no, 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 my experience was I never knew anything about his deity, but I knew and loved him for many years before I was exposed to that. Well, that completely defies the words of Jesus, who says, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. He is the good shepherd. He is the God-man. 
and this has already been firmly established, this term good is kalos, and it suggests worth, suggests nobility. It's not some generic form of the term good. It speaks intrinsically of one's character, the good shepherd. And what maybe for many of you came to mind was in Mark 10, verse 17, this passage, and as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, now pay close attention, a man ran up to him and knelt. That would seem to be some expression of reverence, right? Maybe even worship. And he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And as Jesus so often graciously and very wisely and craftily does, he begins to expose this man's condition right before his own eyes so that those who would read of this experience later would see what happened even though the man himself didn't get it. It's quite tragic. But he says to him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And rather than just answering his question, Jesus answered the question that needed to be answered. Why do you call me good? I mean, you know historically, in a Hebraic sense, what it means to be good. Why are you calling me that when you and all those among you refuse to believe what I've been saying about myself? Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Friends, that is a Crystal clear, practical expression of his deity. No one is good but God. He's claiming to be God in that moment, but what he's doing is exposing the fact that this man has not subjected himself to his deity. And this is why he has a faulty view of what it is to inherit eternal life. He wants to do it by works, he wants to do it by his own goodness. He says, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And had Jesus spoken in our vernacular, he would have said, are you serious? Of course, Jesus knew what was in him. He knew his true condition, and he knew that this man was a liar. Jesus looking at him, again, pay close attention to the details. Looking at him, loved him. You know the proverb, faithful are the wounds of a friend, deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. The friend who loves will speak the truth. And he'll do it in love, but he'll speak the truth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. It's an important story. It's an important truth. It's an important narrative. 
because it displays the misunderstanding of what it is that Jesus is good. This man did not want Jesus for his goodness. This man did not want Jesus. This man wanted whatever Jesus had to offer in the same way that Simon in Acts 8 wanted what the apostles had to offer so that he would gain money from it. And as you know, Peter said to Simon, may your silver burn in hell with you. Not a good way to win friends and influence people, but it is a loving expression of the truth. When a person's condition is what it is, it must be said. And it can be done creatively. It can be done craftily with kindness, but with some intuition about what's going on in that person's life. Jesus, of course, knew that he was committed to feigning the fulfillment of the law. He was a Jew. So he exposed the reality that not only has he not fulfilled the law, he was willing to lie about having fulfilled the law. So Jesus took him a step further into a greater impossibility and said, just sell everything then just try that. I can't do that. Give up my stuff for eternal life? No, my stuff is way too good. Misunderstanding what good is. But Jesus says, he not only calls himself good, he says, I'm the good shepherd. You and I don't understand what a shepherd is. We're not exposed to that. Australians know what shepherds are. This is a man who many times stays up all night. His fingers are weathered. His skin is weathered. He's exhausted. He does what he does, not for his own sake, because he's really developed a love for these nasty, dirty little animals. And by the way, I'm speaking about sheep right now, not people. <laughs> but this is the kindness of the good shepherd. To die for the abominable. To die for the reprobate. God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The prophet Isaiah says it pleased God to crush him. It wasn't a morbid pleasure and the, the pain the wrath poured out on his son. It was pleasure in knowing that this was the singular manner by which those whom he loved would in fact be spared what they deserved. God poured his wrath out upon his son so that his sheep would not experience his wrath. Pleased God to do that. Pleased him. Simply stated, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He dies for the sheep. People don't become sheep. They're either sheep or they're not. That's how this illustration works. This was prophesied the moment of Jesus' birth as well as in a replete fashion prior to his birth. But here in Matthew 1, 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. So the good shepherd loves the sheep and he dies for them. 
That's who he dies for. He dies for his sheep. Point two, I want you to see the false shepherd leaves the sheep to die without him. While the good shepherd loves the sheep and dies for them, the false shepherd leaves the sheep to die without him. Verse 12 says, He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. Matthew 10, 16 says, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Those who would faithfully follow Jesus would be thrust into a wolf-like environment. That's where we get the phrase, don't throw them to the wolves. Jesus threw them to the wolves, but knew that because he had died for them, he would ultimately protect them from wolves, and he called men to do the same. He called men to do the same, but there certainly are those who only want to be in the role for money. That's the point of the term hired hand. There are certainly those who do what they do in ministry simply for a paycheck, Acts 20, verse 24 says this, But I do not account, this is Paul, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. This is what Paul was about. Therefore, this is what we are about. We are about the grace of God by which God saves. Verse 25, And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. This is a heartbreaking moment. Paul has gathered the elders at the dock where he will ride away in a ship, and he's telling them, you'll never see me again in this lifetime. And he's poured himself into them for three years. Verse 26, Therefore I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. What did he obtain with his own blood? The church of God. Jesus died for his sheep. Verse 29 I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And a false shepherd only wants to receive. And he will show himself to be a giver so as to manipulate people into thinking that he actually is. And by so doing, he will gain favor from the non-discerning, from the non-sheep. False sheep will follow 
a false shepherd, so long as he does for them what they want him to do. Forget the basics of Scripture and what it requires from a shepherd, because false sheep do not care. They only want to have their ears tickled, and they want to feel better about themselves. In verse 13, Jesus says, He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. And I don't want to over-broadly paint a picture of what often happens in the pastor, but this is largely why a man will stay in a church for an average of three years. Now, listen, I'm well aware, believe me, I am well aware of the fact that there are difficult implications in so many faithful pastors' lives. But for too many men, it's easy to jump ship. It's easy to move on. I spoke to a dear friend just two days ago who's been pastoring a church for 15 years. I know this guy and I know him well. I've known him for 25 years. He's a man of tremendous integrity. And he said, Todd, you're not going to believe what happened. Started a little church, about 20 people, similar to us. A few years later, there's 250 people, very similar to us. He said, a man in my leadership turned everybody against me. Not long ago, 200 people left. I have 20 people in my church. Now listen, I don't know the situation. I haven't talked to him for two years. I didn't know this had happened. But I know him well. He's a man of tremendous integrity. But I said this to him, embrace it. Be humbled. Be refined. Don't think that there's no truth in what you're being told about you. But this is what I really encourage you to focus on. You have 20 eternally important sheep. And don't let your faithfulness depend upon their faithfulness, but they are faithful. They've been loyal to Christ. They've remained. You better not leave. You stay there. And you do what it takes to be useful to God and trust the Lord to show you what you need to learn about yourself. And whatever it takes, be faithful to him. The hired hand doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He leaves the minute his paycheck is threatened. William Barclay said, told a story of a man who had earned a good living as a pastor. Many people followed him, but a little bit at a time, they became increasingly aware of his arrogance, his pride, his refusal to receive correction. And finally, those responsible said, look, the, the debate was, do we pay him or do we not pay him? And finally, somebody said it with clarity, pay the hireling and let him leave. And so many times churches refuse to do that because they're afraid of what will happen. They're afraid of who will leave with him. Zechariah eleven seventeen says, Woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. Let his arm be wholly withered, his right eye utterly blinded. No shepherd can function without his arm and his eye. May what's necessary happen to him to prevent him from ever misleading sheep again. 
Years ago, as Mark Driscoll was becoming increasingly exposed as the cussing pastor to start with, not to mention his anger and his hatred for people, he made this comment, and he, I believe, felt that it was a sage expression in his own mind. He says, here's what I've learned. You cast vision for your mission, and if people don't sign up, you move on. You move on. There are people that are going to die in the wilderness, and there are people that are going to take the hill. That's just how it is. Too many guys waste too much time trying to move stiff-necked, stubborn, obstinate people. I am all about blessed subtraction. There's a pile of dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus. And then he laughs. And by God's grace, it'll be a mountain by the time we're done. You either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options, but the bus ain't going to stop. Close quote. Beloved, that is not a shepherd. It's a hireling. Mars Hill went on to fire Mark Driscoll because of multiple expressions of dishonesty, a lack of integrity, plagiarism, anger, on and on. Listen to this from Peter 5, verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. You know those pastors that are all about filling the church? You know, getting more people in? There's absolutely nothing in Scripture. Absolutely nothing that calls you or me or anyone to build the church numerically. That is exclusively God's job. I know I've told you this before, but I, I just want to reassure you. In the nearly eight years we've been at church, and even prior to that, not once has some sort of entertaining, intuitive, industrious idea crossed my mind for how we can increase in size. I believe the Lord will do that as we are faithful to him. Peter goes on to say, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. A false shepherd leaves the sheep to die without him. He's not there to serve. He's not there to tend the sheep. He's not there to care for them, to nurture them, to feed them, to protect them. He's there to get what he can out of them, and when that doesn't go well for him, he moves on. Well, third, I want you to see the good shepherd and his sheep know each other. Verses 14 and 15, very simply, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Greater love hath no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friend, for his brother, Verse 17 that we'll look at next week says, For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. 
But his point here is that I die for my own. I die for those who the Father has given to me. Go back with me for a moment to John 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. He dies for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own. And the result is that they know me. Now listen, the theological practical upshot of this is that those who say they know him but clearly don't are not proven to be sheep. They are not proven in the moment to be his own. It's not to say that they're not of his own in eternity past and he hasn't yet saved them. We don't know that. We can't know that. But the person who lives one way and talks another, you know, he claims to be a Christian yet repeatedly proves that he is not. This is the problem. This person's hope is rooted in a decision or a prayer that he prayed, not in what Christ accomplished for his sheep. He's not resting in the death of Christ. He's resting in his fleshly decision. And you remember, Jesus has said to us, the flesh is no help at all. It's no help at all. John 17, 8, For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And then this, this term know, this is gnosko. It's an intimate knowledge. This is the same gnosko in Romans 9 and Romans 11. He foreknew them. He knew them in eternity past. Same term in Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Like we said last week, John Calvin said, if you want to know whether or not you're of the elect, believe on the Lord Jesus. Believe on the Lord Jesus. Make sure it's the right Jesus. And then you'll know. On that day, verse 22, Matthew 7, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Those who had seeming massive expressions of significant and effective ministry. And Jesus says, depart from me, for I never gnosko you. This is where our hope is. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me to side still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you 
are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You have all the tenets of basic gospel theology in this passage. The good shepherd supplies all that you need. He has supplied repentance. He has supplied belief. He has supplied faithfulness. Your role and my role is to acknowledge that and to trust him and obey him and worship him. Ask yourself, as you read through Psalm 23, is this true of me? Is he leading me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake? Is it true of me when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death that I fear no evil because his rod and his staff, his hand of discipline, that's what that means, his rod and his staff, they comfort me? Hebrews 12. Discipline of the Lord results in the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who receive it. Is that you? See, that's how you know whether or not you're one of his sheep. Well, next week on Resurrection Sunday, we'll look at the good shepherd who lives. Jesus says in verses 17 to 18, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. We will look at that together on Resurrection Sunday so that we might listen to his voice. Let's pray. Father, we come to you with gratitude for the love and kindness you have shown us in your Son, our King and our Savior, who is, in fact, the Good Shepherd. Help us, Lord, as we are scathed and humbled by the truth of your word to receive it wholeheartedly and to find ourselves willing to look closely to determine whether or not what we've been told is so. That's what faithful believers do. That's what faithful sheep do. We trust that you'd help us to follow his voice, for he is the good shepherd. But Lord, help us also to be keenly aware of the false shepherd who leaves the sheep to die without him that we and our good shepherd, knowing each other, that we would know him and love him more faithfully. It's in his name we pray. Amen.